Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Guy podcast with your host, Jeff Brown, and our guest, Dave Van Horn. Today, we're going to talk about buying discounted notes with my guest and good friend, David Van Horn. Thanks for joining me, Dave. My first sure. question is buying discounted notes versus the new 12% preferred return that everybody's sporting now. What are your thoughts on that, and why would somebody buy a note with a cash-on-cash return under 12% if they're getting a preferred 12%? Probably the biggest reason for us is our funds are accredited investors. So if someone is not accredited, they can't come into our funds. So that's one reason. But a lot of our fund investors, believe it or not, don't really have any interest in notes anyway. In fact, the the major majority of them don't. Uh, They prefer just the preferred returns. They like the passive investment. They don't want to foreclose on a homeowner. They don't want to own a note. They don't want to depend on a homeowner's payment coming in when the homeowner feels like paying it, for example. They like that they're ACH'd on the first of the month. And, you know, we've been doing it. It's actually approaching our 10th year now of doing that. So a lot of our fund investors, they like that. They they like investing in shares of an LLC privately. They like the anonymity of being a class B or C shareholder. They also like that there's no liability, for example, and that they also get the diversification of being in a pool of notes as opposed to if I owned one note, and everything went sideways, I'm out my money in that one note. Whereas if I'm in a pool of notes, if something were to happen to one individual note, it wouldn't dramatically impact, you know, me at all. I'm going to continue to get my preferred returns, and it, and it usually has a low impact on the fund. On the liability side, there's literally no liability. Now, this might not sound like an advantage, Jeff, uh, where – you know, if I said to you, Jeff, the most that you can lose is your investment, you're like, big deal. But And you might laugh at that, but I'll give you an example. If if I own a piece of real estate or I own a note, like one time I had a woman sue my apartment building that I own for a slip and fall. This woman fell in the alley and she sued for $450,000. So you see how that lawsuit could be worth more than the building, for example, or in the sure. case of a note, you could have a case where, you know, I had a note and say it went non-performing and I hired someone to collect on the note and they violated fair debt collection laws or something. And next thing you know, I'm being sued for more than the value of the note. Like no one thinks about that, right? Well, that can't happen in a fund. You have no liability at all. Now, that might not seem like a big advantage, but to uh, some high income, high net worth folks, they, they respect that and they appreciate that. And like I said, they like the, being in a pool of assets. They like the consistent payment, that type of thing. Now, some investors like to come into the fund because they like to make a return while they're waiting to make to buy notes as well or to buy an REO or something. So some fund investors appreciate, hey, I can make a nice yield while I'm waiting to get a note. But you're you're in a funny market right now, and, and for a lot of folks, they what they – aren't quite aware of sometimes, they think everything just stays the same, and it doesn't. Prices of notes go up and down. It's a marketplace. So there's, you know, you see yields go up, you see yields go down, and and it changes over time, and um, it's just not, it's you know, it's a very, um, I'm not saying it's volatile like the stock market, but it moves up and down. 
And one of the biggest things that drives that is fair market values of the property. So as you see equity come back in the marketplace, it dramatically changes things and the notes become a lot more expensive. You could also say the notes become more valuable, but you can also say they become more, more expensive. So it changes, you know, and it, it fluctuates. Well, the other thing, too, uh, as it relates to the value of notes and the yield is not only what you mentioned, the equity going up and down in the, in the security of the properties, but just the simple supply and demand of notes. Boomers are turning 65 at, at minimum 10,000 a day, every day, and about eight or 9,000 of them are really irritated. <laughs> and Oh, yeah, well, to, yeah, they're chasing, chasing yields, yes, sure. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I had a client the other day who's already in the, the bald guy note fund, and he's retired now, and he's putting, uh, you may have noticed that he's putting 400 grand in the 12% part because he just looks at it as a 12% CD. And you're right. It, it was 8% on May 31st. It's 12% June 1st now of this year for preferred return. And three years from now, it could be 14 and a half or it could be 7 we don't know. As far as the funds, you mean? Right, as far as pre preferred return and return uh, cash on cash on notes and the ultimate return for most of these notes, which p tend to pay off in six to nine years or so. They might be buying something that had 11% cash on cash, but when it pays off early and when it, whenever it does, the actual return from first day in to last day out might be 13 and a quarter, 14. We don't know. For those who are investing purely for the preferred return, which is generally the older investor, not always, but generally speaking. Are you is, saying I'm old, Jeff? <laughs> not coming from my lips. <laughs> not with a birthday next month. So my only point is preferred returns change just like returns on notes and for the same reason. It's the market. Correct. They do, and we've seen them fluctuate over the years. Now, in your opinion, I've already touched on this a little bit, but in your opinion, Dave, who would invest in the Bald Guy Note Fund for the 12% preferred return alone? It's definitely a passive investor who prefers mailbox money. You know, some some investors don't want anything to do with the servicer or any of that stuff. And a lot of these servicers have been, have been upping their fees. So, you know, like I have a cousin that's like that. He's been an investor with me since the beginning, the very beginning. And um, he's done both. You know, he's bought notes and fund. Today, he is strictly in the fund. He goes, I have no interest in owning a note at all. Now, he's a high-income earner, and his wife's in pharmaceuticals, a very high-income earner as well, has no desire to own notes or track them or chase them or monitor them or look at, you know, he's like, I have no interest in that. He goes, i rather just have be in the fund. And he's been in both over the years. So, so it, it's just, you know, I think it's just a, a different uh, person. Um, a lot of these folks that are in the fund only are very are people that are typically very busy or they have, you know, other investments, other things going on. So a lot of them have their own businesses and things like that. So it's uh, they like that passive, I don't have to look at anything. You know what I mean? It's very simple for them. Oh, sure. And I really, really do it all it's the time. very boring. It's very boring being in the fund. You know, it's just like there's there's nothing to do. You know, there's you're like, well, I don't really have anything to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right, right, right. You're 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 uh, you're managing your capital inside that with the preferred return, 
uh, by on the afternoon of the first of each month as you drink your afternoon coffee, uh, you're going online and make sure that the uh, the deposit landed. <laughs> that's your that's your management for the month. Well, and, and they're different investments too. One, you're investing in the actual asset. The other one, you're investing in shares of an LLC, which is like buying shares of a non-publicly traded company. So it's that's the fundamental difference. The the new 12% preferred return. Uh, how long does that last? How long is it going to be in force? Well, it's for a three-year term. If you're asking, will the preferred return ever change? Um, it can. You know, I'm not going to say that a preferred return could never change. Just like the fund managers of all the funds we manage have the ability to pay investors back early, for example, at any time. But it, it would be extremely rare. And most of the time that, it, you know, in the history of the company, I've only seen it where, you know, it's right before maturity or something like that. It, it, it's pretty rare unless, you know, someone made an emergency request or something crazy. But for the most part, you know, we never said, oh, we'll pay all the fund investors back right away. It's possible you have the right to do that, but that's not our goal or anything. We, we want our investors to make money and we want our investors to be happy because we plan to be doing this for a long time. And and um, yeah, we want investors to stay with us. So, of course, we want to keep them in the game with us. Now, the game changes. Like you said, rates, we, you know, we've paid rates over a wide range over the years, but it's not like you don't know that. And to be quite honest, most of the changes in rate, I would say, are like a two-point change typically. You know what I mean? Right. They're not, you know, you're not going to see 12 go to 20, and you're not going to see 12 go to 4. You know, it doesn't, right. it just doesn't happen like that normally. You know, you might see it fluctuate. You know, a 12 will go to 11, or a 12 will go to four, uh, 13 or 14, you know, like, you never see these huge swings typically, if that makes any sense. But, you know, no, it's it's usually ours are three-year terms. That's, you know, mostly all the time that's what happens. You know, so I don't really see anything like that. So I, I don't understand. You know, I don't know if you're asking me, will it be 12% a year from now or two years from now? You know, I wish I was that smart, but you kind of don't have that crystal ball, you know. Did I think bond rates would be negative? Uh, I'll be honest with you, no, I never did. <laughs> And I can't imagine that there, you know, there's people with a lot of capital that get a negative return, which means they're paying for safety, which is astonishing, but they do it. So. Well, we live long enough, we see a lot of things, don't we? Mm-hmm. Now, how reliable is that three-year period as far as the, the stated um, return? Well, based on past history, it's been very reliable because it's always been the case. You know, I, I guess I can't guarantee the future based on past returns. I, I, I'm sure you hear all the financial advisors oh, yeah. say that. Oh, yeah. But based on the past, you know, almost 10 years now, that's always been the case. And I don't foresee anything different with it. I really don't. You know, funds tend to uh, start out and then they go through a growth period and they go through a maturity phase. But, you know, we manage several funds and... You know, I don't, I don't foresee anything happening there. We can't pay fund investors quick enough, fast enough, and we can't pay them back fast enough. Because at the end of the day, we, we own what's left in that fund when that fund is done, it's maturity phase. So for us, it, you know, I don't see anything inhibiting, you know, like the ability to pay the preferred returns. You know, it, it's kind of about the velocity of money. It's about how we buy distressed assets from banks at a discount. And, you know, how we create those modifications. And if you think about it, it's really a, a risk-reward equation, and we manage risk, right? It's 
it would be like, um, you know, if you're a mutual fund investor, Jeff, and on Monday you start to uh, trade options, but you have no experience at that. You would go, well, that's risky. But if you were a seasoned options trader, you would be like, well, no, trading options is easy. I do it every day. So it's, I'm just using that analogy sure. in our space where people go, well, how do you do that? You know, um, but it, it's really about managing risk and knowing, you know, the people say the same thing. Why don't the banks do the same thing you do? And, and it's because we're buying it at a discount. We're not into that $50,000 loan for 50000 We might be into it for five or 10000 You know what I mean? So it's a big difference. And, they, and you know, the other side is they – they they can't do things we can do and you know just everything from regulations and so on and so forth from a PR perspective you know we we can do things they can't now they're not in the collections business they're in the lending business they're in they're not in the real estate business um, and they'll gladly tell you that and in their world it's a small percentage of their portfolio in our world it is our portfolio right so it's um you know you become experts in your niche you know it, it's it's something we've done for years and years and years. And the other thing is, you know, the fund has the ability to, you know, like this fund can buy junior liens, which have a higher yield than senior liens. And right. senior liens we buy are low balance senior liens that have higher yields than most first mortgages. So there's different things we do to create those types of returns, right? And the other thing is we turn the money. You know, I had someone... The other day, he's like, well, you know, based on what your, you know, prospectus says, you would have to make this yield, this type of yield. But what he didn't understand was we're turning the money. You know, we're in and out of deals. We're turning, we're going back and buying more. So it's a, it's a combination of things, just like the economy of scale. You know, I mentioned we manage several funds, and, and the beauty of that is we get an economy of scale from that, right? It lowers our cost and management. And today you're going to see we get more for an asset today when we sell an asset. And our first priority is to protect the fund, obviously. And, and, and that the reason we get higher prices for the assets we sell is because due to the equity nowadays, it's coming back into the marketplace. And notes are definitely higher priced, right? And, you know, it, the other beauty is, you know, sometimes you, we can do things like we can keep an asset a little longer. And the longer the pay history, for example, the more valuable the assets. So if a note had 12 months of payments or 24 months of payments, we get a lot higher price for some of this. And if that's in the best interest of the fund, you know, it's in the best interest of the fund, right? So there are things and safeguards in place that could be implement, you know, implemented to improve yield. And, and so a lot of people don't understand that part. Sometimes they can't understand, well, how can a fund pay a higher rate than the note, for example? I think you touched on that earlier. Well, if you think about it, all the notes in my portfolio are worth more, and I can sell a note for a higher dollar. Well, that makes the fund more money. Well, and let me Sorry. let me interrupt you there because that leads me into uh, my my final question, Dave, because it's it's one of the three most asked questions when I when I talk about uh, the fund. They say, you know, with a twelve percent preferred return, how in the world does the fund make money paying right. that out? And if you could just put it in layman's terms. Because it's really not rocket science, but if you would answer that, that would that would clear up a lot for a lot of people. There's several things going on, right? When I think about that type of a question, so I don't. I wish it was like one simple, easy answer, but it's not. It's it's a few. If you really think about the sweet spot for us and how we generate revenue and why we're different than everybody else, 
I think of several areas where that comes into play. One is we have access to a lot of capital and can move quickly and can buy in volume. We also have a pretty good data team that has been doing a lot of analytics and data analysis for the last 10 years. So we have a lot of data on what we're buying and the outcome of what we're buying. So a lot of that's proprietary when you think about it. And then we also have a proprietary, a loss mitt department, so to speak, that can do these modifications. And I'll give you a statistic that might start to make sense to you. The typical bank, for example, has a redefault rate on their workout agreements, their modifications, north of 40%. So a lot of them are between 40 and 60% redefault rates on their modifications. Ours is 15. It's a huge difference when you think about it. Now, the other thing is, you know how we have warranties on our notes. Well, because of the equity situation in the marketplace, our, our number of buybacks has dropped dramatically. We buy back fewer and fewer loans, and we have fewer and fewer redefaults. And it makes sense, right, because there's equity coming back into the marketplace. People are easy, and it, it, a lot of this is related to how well jobs are. Well, think about it. We've had, well, supposedly the lowest unemployment. I'm not convinced it's the same type of unemployment. You have a lot more part-time jobs. I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I agree. But, but probably the biggest factor for us is not interest rates, for example. You know, people ask us that all the time. Does, oh, does interest rates impact you? What if interest rates go up a lot, you know? But that doesn't impact us too much because the interest rate on the original note doesn't matter what that was because we're going to modify it. It really impacts our cost of capital. And you can see what we're, we're paying out for cost of capital. And you see what a bank pays you, which is what, 1% or whatever. So it would have to go a long way to hit 12, right, before it would dramatically impact us to have to raise rates for the cost of capital. So interest rates are not a big driver in our business, and a lot of people think they would be. What's the big driver for us more, more than that is jobs. So, it, it, you know, when you think of the reasons people default, it's usually job loss, medical, you know, divorce, death. They're the, they're the reasons, right? So it, it's a different ball game. The economy is a big driver. Now, if the economy is bad, there's more delinquent assets, right? If the economy is good, people are able to pay us off and refinance and move. And so I don't know where we lose because we kind of win on both sides of this. I was just going to make that point. I was just going to make that point because it's uh, it's kind of brutish. But when things go bad and we have a lot of cash, we can make hay. Right. You shift uh, your strategies a little bit and the uh, – the types of exits we have vary. So in a down market, there's more delinquent assets, but there's also more junk assets, and it takes longer to exit a deal. And, for example, one exit strategy would be a deed in lieu. Well, you're not going to do a lot of deed and lose in a down market where the equity's falling. Right. In an up market, you could do more deed and lose, but you're going to be in and out of deals quicker, and you're pretty much guaranteed to make your money because the equity's there, and now you're doing it quicker. So it's a... It's a time for money equation where you can turn money quicker in an up market than a down market, but in an up market assets are more expensive and a down market they're cheaper, but it takes you longer. So it's almost like how does the bookie know how to set games? I don't know, but that's what the way it is in the marketplace for notes just as well. We joke about that. You know, how does Wall Street know how to set these portfolios? But it's kind of interesting they do. Well, and a constant ongoing joke about betting is that uh, – you might win or lose on a given day, but the bookie just doesn't lose because they understand. And it's the same thing with the fund. Uh, economy up, economy down, you just shift gears 
and you you uh, take advantage of what whichever way the economy is going. And if you don't shift gears, that's only that's when the problem happens. But again, that's not exactly rocket science, is it? No. So I mean, it's a. So I don't know if I gave enough examples of you know where you generate revenue changes based on market conditions. But you can see it does make sense. I I hope it makes sense. What I explained. You're you're turning money. You're you're you have a lot of capital. You can move quickly. Our typical trades will fund in two weeks. Well, not everybody has, you know, 10 or 20 or $15 million to move very quickly to buy these distressed assets, you know. So, and that's a big part of it. And that's one of the, you know, the funds for us are not necessarily the ideal form of capital for us. An ideal form of capital for us would be to just access money the day we needed it, right? But we pay on money, on the use, on the ability to have money all year long so that we can move very quickly. And I, I think that's a concept for people, too. But we're able to recapitalize that money fairly quickly in a six to 12-month period. And if you're in for three years, you could see that the more we turn that money, the more we would make, right? So. No, absolutely. Listen, I think we have slayed this dragon today. I really appreciate your answers. They've been uh, absolutely in-depth to understate it. We welcome you back for our next podcast uh, when we will be talking to Dave again about the Ball Guy Note Fund. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bald Guy Podcast with Jeff Brown and our guest, Dave Van Horn.